morning, Grace. My name is Josh Mitchell. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm just going to jump right into it this morning. I need your help, all right? My wife, Marcy, and I, we have some disagreements, we have some disputes, we have some dialogues. And I thought, what better way to solve these than on stage in front of a couple hundred people while it's being live streamed to the internet? So are you in this with me? Okay, we're going to play a little game this morning. It's a very simple game. It's called Husband or Wife, all right? And everyone can play along even if you're not married because everyone has opinions and views on marriage. Uh, just ask an engaged couple. They'll let you know. Everyone's got an opinion, married or not. So this is a very simple game. It's called Husband or Wife. I have a couple of uh, questions about who should do what. And then this is going to be very scientific. So here's what I need you to do. On the count of three, just yell your answer out to the air. All right? And then that will, I'm sure, bring us to a very uh, conclusive decision, right? If you are online, feel free to throw your answer into the chat as we play along. All right, so here we go, husband or wife, who should plan the vacations? Who should pick, hold on, hold on. You are very excited to play this game, all right? Little order here. Who should plan the vacations? Who should set the destination? Who should make the reservations? Keep everyone on schedule on the count of three. One, two, three. That settles it. All right, I think we're a little, a little more on the wife's side there. All right, next one is this. Who should be in charge of the finances? All right. Who should pay the bills? Who should file the taxes? Who should make the angry calls to Comcast? All right, on three, one, two, three. All right. You see the source of our disagreements here. You're seeing it played out in real time, right? Okay, how about this one? Who should do the laundry, right? The colors, the whites, the towels, or in my version, whatever gets thrown in there, all right? On three, one, two, three. Oh, someone said the kids. That is a fantastic answer. I like that one. All right, this next one is who should feed the dog? Or maybe in your case, it's the cat. I'm sorry. Who should feed the pets? Who should feed the dog? One, two, three. <laughs> and this last one, who should pick their husband's socks off the floor? One, two, three. Oh, man. <laughs> Notice how I phrased that question. Some of you are thinking back that one. All right. Hey, we are in this series called Life by Design. We are looking at some of the crucial relationships in life and looking to Scripture to see what God's Word has to say about it. And this morning, we are talking about marriage, what Scripture says about it, and what God's design is for it. But as we enter into the topic, I think the first question we have is simply, what is marriage? And it may seem like a simple question, but when you look at all the various opinions and thoughts that people have in our day and age, maybe it's not quite simply such a clear-cut answer. What is marriage? You know, when I was in college, I got a job working security at the Moda Center, which is then called the Rose Garden Arena. And one day, I was really excited. I had some great news. So I got to work a little early, and I busted into the employee break room where we would check in. And I said, everyone, I have good news. 
and my boss said, Josh, please don't interrupt me. Now, as I was saying, you know, I think that marriage is an outdated patriarchal institution that's unfit for modern people. Now, Josh, what was your big news? Oh, I got engaged last night. <laughs> you can guess who didn't get an invitation to the wedding. <laughs> but is that true? Have you maybe heard that? That marriage is an outdated institution that doesn't really fit into our modern times? And in fact, what is marriage? Maybe some would define it simply uh, as a symbol of commitment, whatever that means, and for as long as that means between those two people. Maybe marriage is just simply a convenient tax reduction mechanism. Uh, or maybe marriage is how a society affirms someone's identity or orientation. Or maybe marriage is just whatever you want to mean. Create your own meaning, whatever the two people want it to mean. Well, although society and different societies throughout history have definitely shifted and changed their views on what marriage is, what it means, even when we look at the cultures of weddings and how some things have changed, obviously, throughout human history, there does remain something timeless and true about marriage, especially when we look into God's Word. We see that there are some things that are unchangingly true about it. And when it comes to marriage, from the biblical point of view, I think that the most foundational thing to understand and to build our thoughts on is this idea that God created marriage. That marriage is not, is not a societal invention. It's not something that modern man can choose to do away with or change, but that marriage is created by God. And we actually see this in the very beginnings of Scripture, all the way back to Genesis 1, which Pastor Steve went through last week, but we will uh, quickly recap this morning. Genesis 1, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So here we see the very first chapter of God's word that God is the creator not only of us, that he created us in his image as his image bearers, but that he took man and woman and he created their union. And in biblical terms, marriage would be known as a covenant. And that's not really a word that we use today very often, but we do use words like a promise or even a vow. Weddings today have vows, which are promises from the person, one person to the other. Not because they are required by law, not because they are compulsory. Now, certainly some people maybe think there's out more than others, but covenants are entered into voluntarily. They are made personally. And you can see how just as 
we, God's creation, reflect his image. So does marriage. It says to be fruitful and increase in numbers. It means have lots of babies, build big families. That in itself, it's like a, a micro creation. That just how God created everything in some small way, a marriage relationship reflects God, even in the way of bringing new life into the world. And that marriage has some sort of intrinsic purpose. If you want to put that Genesis 1 verse back up there just for a second, you can see that God gives the first man, the first woman, a task to rule, to rule over the fish and the sea and the birds of the air and everything. That there is a shared task between Adam and Eve, a purpose. There's something to be done. And in this creation, not only are new things brought forth, but also some things are distinguished from the other. Later on in Genesis chapter 2, it says, that This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This verse has been uh, summarized as leave and cleave. Right? The idea that, hey, as long as you are um, a child, you live in you, with your parents. But at some point, you, you move out. And although in our modern world that doesn't always line up with marriage, in the ancient world it did. You would live in your father's house with your, your nuclear family until it was time to be married. And then you would move out. You'd be your own family and have your own, own place to live. Uh, when I got married, we spent all of four days in the same part of the country where my parents and my wife Marx's parents lived. And then we moved from Washington State to Washington, D.C., about 3,000 miles on day four of our marriage. And that was an exceptionally exciting but difficult time. We moved just outside of Washington, D.C., where we had no family, no friends, no acquaintances. I had my first full-time ministry position out there, and we uh, were definitely taking this leaving cleave verse to its maximum, right? Oh, I'll show you how I will leave my father and mother. I'll get as far away as I possibly can. Uh, and man, you know, as difficult as those early years were, we're out there for four years living in a small one-bedroom apartment in the worst part of town, it did something incredible for our marriage. It strengthened us in a way that I don't think anything else could have. And if you are, are young and married, one small suggestion I have for you is don't get roommates. Don't move in with mom and dad. As hard as it is financially in this day and age, that God is creating something new in a marriage. And he's bringing something new out of that. And for the new to start, the old has to pass away. You know, what's interesting about 
marriage, especially as we look in these first two chapters, is that it's not a command. Now, God gives lots of instructions and commands in his word, but marriage isn't one of them. You actually can't find any verse in the Bible where God commands people to be married because it's not a command. It's a commitment, and it's not forced upon us. It's something that we voluntarily, gladly enter into. And, you know, when it comes to things like marriage, and especially in the church, and the way churches have talked about marriage throughout the, the years, it almost seems as if marriage is a requirement. And that if you're not married, or you're not married anymore, well, then you're kind of like a, a second class in the church. And that your know, marriage is the ideal, and if you can't meet that ideal, well, then you kind of fall short. But that doesn't actually fit at all what marriage is from the Bible. Because marriage isn't compulsory, and it doesn't make you more or less creating God's image, loved by Him, a reflector of His image. And single people, whether you are single by choice, not by your choice, by death, that you are a gift to the kingdom of God. And you are just as much an image bearer and a furtherer of God's kingdom than anyone else in this church. And in fact, this whole issue of singleness is so important, we're not just going to shoehorn it into a marriage, a message on marriage. We're going to talk about it for its own week. So in the weeks to come, we're going to look at what the Bible says about singleness by itself. I want you to, to hear me say that as we go through and talk about marriage a lot today that marriage is not this command that if you can't live up to, you are falling short in God's eyes. Not at all. So if marriage is created by God, it would seem that there is a purpose for that creation. God doesn't seem to create anything just for no reason at all. So if marriage has a design marriage has a purpose, what is it? I think it would simply be to mirror God's love. That to reflect one of the most important aspects of himself. Uh, I brought here with me on stage my favorite hammer. This has gotten me through many different projects in and around my house, under the house, on top of the house, outside, inside. And it's just a, a simple hammer, but it was created and designed for a reason, which is to build, or maybe specifically to hammer nails. But the, the shape, the design, the weight, the handle, it was all made for a purpose. Now, the interesting thing is, once I bought it, took it home, put it in my toolbox, pulled it out of my toolbox, as a free, free will human being, I can kind of use this hammer for whatever I want, right? I could go, I could try and make my breakfast and flip pancakes. I could try to use it to uh, screw in nails, or I could use it to hammer nails. But no matter what I try to use this for, the purpose and the design doesn't change. 
Now, much like marriage, this is a, this is a powerful tool. And it's not a power tool, but it's a powerful tool, right? And you can imagine the useful things you could get done with this, especially figuring what you could do if you didn't have it, you needed it. But it doesn't take much imagination to think about the damage that this could do, being as uh, unpowered tool as it is. In fact, I want you to imagine if uh, for some reason there was a gang going around town, wielding hammers, hitting people in the knees. And someone would say, what a wretched, awful tool. It is unfit for modern society. I think you would say, well, certainly the action was wrong, but someone has been using this against its design and creation. I think we'd see the same thing with marriage. That although God has designed it for good and designed it for a certain purpose, as free will human beings, things can be used against their purpose to bring harm and hurt into our world. So, how exactly can a marriage be used according to its design? How can it be used well? How can it be used in order for it to be beneficial, good, and right? All right, we are going to jump into God's Word today. But before we do, one, I need you to pull out your Bibles, either paper, on your phone, whatever it is. You can find your way to the New Testament letter of Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 5. But as we do that, I want you to uh, reach across your body, grab your imaginary seatbelt, and just buckle up, buttercup, all right? And I want you to tighten that thing low and tight across your waist, just like an airline uh, flight attendant would tell you to do, all right? Because this one, this is going to be good, all right? Here we go. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is instruction to all Christians, the body of Christ, to be submitting to each other out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Is your seatbelt on tight enough? You may want to tighten up just a little bit, all right? Here we go. For as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The, the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Oh boy. Okay, well, thank you for coming to Grace Community Fellowship Church. I hope you have a blessed Sunday. 
All right. So, hey, let's dig into that because there are some things in there um, that are very interesting. Wives submit to husbands, husbands being the head of the wife. Wow. What does that mean? Maybe marriage is just an outdated social patriarchal institution. All right? Let's dig into some of this. I want to first point out, and you can even just read back through that passage one more time on your own or as it's on the screen. Get this. Of all the earthly metaphors that could possibly be used to describe Christ's love for those he died for, of all the things in this world, the best metaphor we have is marriage. Get that. Now, when we look at this section of Scripture in Ephesians 5, we can see that the predominant language and focus is on love. It's the most used word in this passage. It's repeated seven times. So our main theme here, as we talk about marriage and God and the relationship between the two, is love. And that makes sense if that is the connecting factor here. That just as God loves us and he came and died for us, and then if, if marriage is supposed to be created by God to reflect him, well then the connecting word there is love. And we do see here specific instructions for those who have entered into the Christian covenant of marriage. You can see that uh, wives are instructed twice just to get the point across. And husbands are instructed three times because they weren't listening the first two times. <laughs> All right. Uh, and there are some very interesting words here, right? Wives are told to submit themselves to their own husbands. Now, when it comes to these words, it's important to not bring in our own thoughts or even our own society's thoughts of what these words would mean, but instead to think, what was the purpose of the writer of these words? All right, of the, of the biblical writers, of Paul in this instance, what did they mean when they wrote this word? And it's not too difficult to understand. You simply have to read this passage and to see the words that are being used when it talks about this. Notice that this is not something that is forced, coerced, or demanded. This is something that is freely done out of love. And notice that this says nothing about all women being subjugated under all men. Not at all. This is specifically talking about those who have freely entered into the Christian covenant of marriage. But still, even then, we naturally push back against authority, don't we? All of us, men, women, we don't necessarily like authority uh, in our workplaces. We don't like authority in our government. We would just rather have no authority at any time among us or until we really, really need it, and then we'll take it back, and then we're done with it. We'll have it go away again. But here's the interesting thing. The Christian way of life is, a way, is the way of submission. 
Notice how Ephesians 5.21, we are told to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So as a Christian community, among each other, we are called to lovingly sacrifice and give up for one another. Why? Because this is the way of Christ, and this is the way of his church. You know, even Jesus submitted to his Father in his ministry here on earth. And he modeled to us the way of following him, the way of living in the Christian community. And that is one of, of submission. Now, we notice that in verse 23, it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of his church. Now, notice what that means. This idea of, of leadership, of headship, of authority. This is not authoritative or domineering. This is being like Jesus. This is sacrificial service and love. It is simply to be like Jesus, to talk like Jesus, to live like Jesus. I heard someone this week offer me the explanation that um, for the Christian, headship means this, taking initiative for the benefit of your spouse. You could also maybe say sacrificing for the benefit of yourself, of your spouse, to do what Jesus did. Even looking at the meaning of this text here and defining these words, we can still see how these ideas run deeply against the grain of our culture and of our world. But Christian marriage has always been countercultural, and it always will be, because it was pre-cultural. Before there was any society or community or culture, there was God's design. Now, something very interesting here that I think we need to understand. If you were, again, if you were to look through uh, Ephesians 5, the verses after this, you would see that Paul goes on to talk about uh, children and their submission to parents and even uh, servants' submission to their masters, which would be, you know, uh, employees' submission to the authority of employers. And this order of, uh, of husband and wives, of fathers and children, and servants and masters, in that order, we actually see other places in Scripture. In fact, at least two other times, very similar instructions to the Christian community. Now, this is most likely a reference to the Roman household code of the first century, which was developed by Aristotle, which was simply this, that Husbands are to rule over wives, that fathers are to rule over children, and that masters are to rule over slaves. And this was accepted by and large in the first century in the Roman Empire as what was needed for society to function well. And notice how the biblical authors, they kind of key in on this very commonly held idea 
but they turn the idea completely on its head. And instead of marriage being a necessity for cultural and societal good, marriage is actually for God's love. And this isn't done out of a need for a good society or for uh, a need for, for order. It's done out of love. And instead of uh, a purely authoritative rule, this is a loving sacrifice and submission. And, you know, if the Roman culture viewed marriage for cultural good, maybe our current culture views marriage for personal good. That as long as it benefits me, as long as I am the one who benefits, as long as I get what I want and what I need, well, then marriage is good. But the second marriage becomes not convenient, not good, not personally beneficial in the, the moment, why care? And you can see that just as in the first century, God's design of marriage totally upended their views. It does so today. And that God's design will continue to upend and unroot any untrue thing about himself. If marriage is a design of God for the good of his people, then the best marriages will imitate Jesus. The best marriages will imitate Jesus. If we were to jump back to the first verse of Ephesians chapter 5, it says this, Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. In these two verses, we get a beautiful, simple version of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's to follow God's example and to walk in the way of love as Christ loved us, to do what Jesus did, to live life as he did. And if you are married in this room and you're sitting back and you're reflecting on your marriage, maybe even thinking about things that you could say different and do different, here's the thing. The very best thing that you can do for your marriage is to get closer to Jesus. Because the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you'll be like him. And the more you'll be able to imitate him by loving like him, by sacrificing like him, by doing the things he would do, by saying the words he would say. You know, I think a lot of times, by default, I think about marriage as being 50-50. I have my chores, my wife has her chores. You know, I have my job, she has her job. You know, I want to go to my favorite restaurant this week, and so next week we'll go to her favorite restaurant. And it's very easy to look at marriage as being like 50-50, right? Let's just make sure I get one, then you get one, and then I'll get one more, and then maybe I'll get one more, but then you can get one after that, right? Maybe like 40-60 my way. But that's not what marriage is. It's not 50-50. Because Jesus is not 50-50. 
Jesus doesn't say, you know what, I'll forgive your sins as long as you can meet me in the middle, right? As long as you can put some work in, then I'll meet you halfway. Jesus, before we were even born, came to this world while we were still sinners to die for us, to give 100% of his life for us while we completely rejected him. And he rose again that we may have new life, not because we met him halfway, but because he gave 100% of himself for us. And if we are to be reflections of Jesus in this life, then none of our relationships can be 50-50. Our friendships, our family relationships, our marriage relationships have to be 100% dedicated to being like Jesus, to selflessly serving and loving and doing the best for others, denying our own selves, giving up our rights, our preferences, our opinions, and that is the kind of living that reflects God and his goodness and his love for us. You know, before I got married, I thought I was a pretty selfless person. You know, I thought I was like, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, like I, 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 uh, I'm not living for myself. And oh gracious, the wake-up call I got, right? When, uh, you know, I don't think the first sentence that would pop into Jesus' mind when he got up was, I wonder who's making me breakfast this morning. Well, guess what? It's mine, right? Why don't I smell bacon? It's 7 o'clock. It's so easy to default to living for ourselves. How am I going to get served? How can I be helped? What can you do for me? And if I thought I was selfish when I got married— then I had kids. And I realized, oh my goodness, can I ever stop thinking about myself for a moment? No, I can't. I'm still trying. And you know, the reality of life is, is that much like this hammer, what God has made for good, we have used for evil. And we have done that with every good gift that God has given us. And so unfortunately, our lived experience, our world does not always match up with the Ephesians 5 that we read today of love, of sacrifice, and of care and God's reflection. In fact, many, many of us have experienced the reality of broken relationships, of broken marriage, of harm, personally, in our family, in our friends. It's all around us. We've been through divorces, whether we initiate it or not. We've been through separations. Maybe you've had intense spiritual mismatch in a relationship, abuse. There uh, is incredible hurt that has come into our world through marriage. Not by God's design, but through evil choices. Sometimes ours, sometimes others. And if you have been or currently in an abusive relationship, I just want to say that we want to help you. And we want to be here for you. And if you are struggling with shame or guilt or hurt surrounding any of these things, 
God has grace and forgiveness and love to you. Whatever you've done, whatever has been done to you, God is not here to shame you for the ideal that you could not uphold. Instead, he wants to love you and for you to experience a relationship with him. And his desire for you, first and foremost, is to experience his love and relationship with him. And that is the only way that we could start to be his imitators, to be his image bearers into our world, is that we first experience his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. And then little by little, through the power of his spirit, we are able to pour that into the lives of others and those all around us. And this transformation is something that we see not just in marriages, but in all of our relationships. So for everyone here today, whether you've been married a long time, you're newly married, you're no longer married, you want to be married, you do not want to be married, here is the truth, that you were created by God on purpose and for a purpose, that He has a design and a plan for you and for your life, even though we rarely get that clearly in the moment. And that his desire for you is to be his reflection, his image to everybody around you. In all of your relationships, our families, our marriages, our friendships, that we first experience his love his forgiveness, and that we live that out to all those around us. And in that way, we bring God's love and His grace to others through our words and through our actions. That's something I challenge you to step into today. That you would not sit back and think, man, you know, I've messed up especially my, my marriage, I said some things I shouldn't say, I've done some things I shouldn't have done, so I'm going to try harder, and I'm going to do better. That is not the message of Jesus. That Jesus does not simply make us better, he makes us new. He transforms us so that through him we can do things that otherwise we can't even do, despite all of our willpower and attempts. So what if this week you let God work in you and through your life to do things that only he could do and that you live your life by his design? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you how it tells us of your love, of your design for our life. God, as we look inside ourselves and out in our world, there is so much brokenness and hurt, and I pray that we would be your people, your image bearers who bring your love and your truth and goodness into this world. And God, may you do a radical work in our hearts that overflows into all of our relationships around us. God, thank you for your love and your goodness and your wonderful design for our lives. As we enter a time of worship and reflect on that love that you have for us. In your name, amen.